0: Well, I have to say it is really good to be back with you all this morning. Um, We've spent the last three Sundays worshiping with Christians in different states. And uh, in Colorado is kind of the place where everybody was coming from wherever they live. And that was really good. But so good to be back here (laughs) with uh, those that we know and love so well. I will also say, the service we went to last week in Kansas uh, was a church, we just found one online and said that's where we're going. Started at 10.15, we thought that was a good sign. Um, (laughs) Started at 10.15 and they were out right at noon. Yeah. 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 So I figure that gives me till roughly 1 o'clock today. (laughs) No. Um, But it is good to be back. We're going to begin our Old Testament lesson, Exodus chapter 16, verses 1 through 15. It should be found on page 61 in the Old Testament section of your pew Bibles. And I just realized I had the wrong Bible here. There we go. There it is. All right, before we read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. We thank you for bringing us here today to worship you. We ask that as we hear your word read and proclaimed, that you would do a miracle in our hearts and our lives, that you would open our ears where we might be tempted to close them. That you, might, that you would soften our hearts we might be tempted to harden them, that you would give us understanding in our minds when we might be tempted to let our thoughts wander. Lord, we ask that you would do a miracle in each of us this morning and together as your people, that we would be changed by your spirit and by your word even more today into the people that you created us to be. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Exodus chapter 16, we have Moses and the Israelites in the wilderness. And it says, They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and said to them, uh, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may prove them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, When they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your murmurings against the Lord. For what are we that you murmur against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening flesh to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your murmurings which you murmur against him, what are we? Your murmurings are not against us but against the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your murmurings. And as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the murmurings of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat flesh, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quails came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay round about the camp. And when the dew had gone, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as hoarfrost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat." Turning then to Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18, which can be found on page 185 in the New Testament section of your pew Bibles. Paul has just written to the church in Philippi about how we should have the same attitude Of Christ Jesus, doing nothing out of selfish ambition, but everything in humility, considering others before yourselves. Then, picking up in verse 12, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For God is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured as a libation upon the sacrificial offering of your faith." I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, for our sermon text this morning, you see that it is John chapters 4 and 6, selected verses. We are going to begin a sermon series this morning. Looking at those chapters, but in reverse order, we'll cover chapter six first, and we're looking at five ways to reach people and their families. This these five ways actually come from a friend of mine. He's given me permission to uh, use this way of keeping these in mind and going through it. Uh, He's actually somebody, some of you may know him. His name is Matthew Halstead. He was the youth pastor at First Baptist in Sonora and is now pastoring a church in uh, McLeod, Oklahoma. And he came up with these five letters. Each stand for a different word. Or Yes, that's reach, the all of them put together. And that helps us remember how to reach people. Now, we just got back... A couple of weeks ago, anyway, from mission trip in Colorado. It was a great week. We did a lot of work in, in that amount of time that we were there. And uh, we met up with a group from Massachusetts, a youth group there, and we worked hard. And got a lot done. I don't know how many tons, one of the leaders was trying to figure out how many tons of rock they think we moved by hand as we were clearing the pastures and shoring up the banks of the river so that you know the river doesn't take away half the camp the next time the mountain snow melts and it runs right down through there. We trimmed trees, we stained sheds, we stained buildings, we built shelves. We built fires. Lots of, of fires. Benjamin burned his pants. Um, that was not on the agenda for the day, but it happened. And We, we felled trees carefully. Um, we picked up trash that had been left from, uh, from years gone by. And by the time we left, that camp looked so much better than when we arrived. That was good. That was really good. But the reason we went there was not ultimately so the camp would look better. The reason we went there was to make the camp look better so that people will go there and that through going there will be reached for the gospel. That people would actually come into a relationship with Jesus Christ through their time at that particular camp. That's why we went. That's why we worked. And in fact, we didn't just work physically. We did a lot of work Mentally, spiritually as well. Um, like I say, I was there with this other group from Massachusetts. Their leader had planned out a way to go through the entire book of Second Timothy while we were there. And so we had morning devotions, evening devotions every day. And by the time we got to the end of the week, we had gone through the entire book. With all these kids, he spoke several times, I spoke several times, Jim Roach spoke several times, those kids heard I don't know how many sermons but the, the week was over, um, and had studied through this whole book uh, on their own and together with others. And come the end of the trip, there were actually um, numerous kids who decided they wanted to take the next step in their faith uh, to get closer in their relationship with Jesus than they had been before. And there were even those who decided to take that first step, who had actually come realizing that they had never really begun a relationship with Jesus. And so did so on this trip. And for that, I want to thank all of you for your prayers, for everybody who is out there, um, the support that you provided. Because here's what we're here's what we're talking about today. We're talking about reaching other people. And in the way that this camp, is to be used to reach other people. And even in the ways that it did that while we were there, reaching people for Jesus, that is one of the things that we are primarily about as a church. And we have the five things that we're about as a church that so we spell with the word FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, facilitate new relationships with Jesus, uh, incline our hearts to the Lord in worship, that we are relate to one another in intimate community, that we, IRS. Stimulate one another to grow in discipleship. And T, tend to the needs of others in love. Those are the things that we do as a church, as a congregation. And the first one that we mention, facilitate new relationships with Jesus. That's one of the things that we should be about as a Christian church. As those who are followers of Jesus, we should be trying to reach others and bring them into a relationship with Jesus. Now, it is it is easy to come to an understanding that, okay, that's what we need to do. We need to reach people for Jesus. And so you look around at your community and say, there are, you know, X number of churches. There are 12 right now in El Dorado. 2,000 people. So if we had, what is it, 160 members per church, something like that, then uh, that would all, you yeah. Everybody would at least have an opportunity to hear the gospel on a regular basis. But that's not where we are, is it, as a community? There are plenty of people in El Dorado and in the surrounding uh, Schleicher County area who are not hearing the gospel on a regular basis and many who may not be hearing the message at all. Who is going to tell them? We are those who are to tell them. And so one of the things that would be easy to do is to look at that situation and say, we are those who need to communicate this message. This message of hope in a world that's despairing. And a message of light in a world of darkness. A message of peace in a world of antagonism. And a message of love in a world of hate. We have this message. We're to share this message. And we can say, okay, we know that. Let's go do it. Let's develop a plan. Here's how we're going to reach them. And we can get together and we can come up with some ideas. Here's how to reach them. And those may or may not be good plans, depending on where we start. And so what we're doing this morning is we're going to start, make sure we start right. The letter R stands for remember. We're looking at reach, R-E-A-C-H. Letter R stands for remember, and that is to remember not just that we have a message worth sharing, not just that there are people in our own spheres of influence who need to hear this message, but we are to remember that we don't save anybody. Remember that salvation is a work of God. God saves people. So if you're taking notes, the R stands for remember, God saves people. All right? Now, for a beginning sermon on evangelism, I'm going to go probably to one of the least likely er, places in the Bible, which is... Um, John chapter 6 and I say that because usually when we think about evangelism we're thinking not so much in terms of sharing the good news, which is what evangelism means but often what we think we're talking about when we say evangelism is how to get more people in the pews and we'll call that evangelism get people in the pews of a church and if we do that then it doesn't matter really how we did it that's evangelism, that counts Jesus is in a situation in John chapter 6 where there's an opportunity to really pack some pews, and yet he shares the good news, and things don't go as we might expect, but he doesn't do things the way that we might do them either. And so our uh, goal this morning is to learn from Jesus, to see how he works, and to examine our own lives and ministries in relationship to who he is and how he works. I'm going to paraphrase the first half of this chapter, and then we'll look at it a little more closely. Hmm. We may have to go to one. Okay. Okay. Actually, planning on covering the first two letters today. If we get through the first one, I'll be I'll be pleased. <laughs> chapter Chapter six starts out: Jesus has been uh, healing people and so and teaching, and people are following him in great crowds. And this is the familiar story. I'm sure you are you're aware of this one. It is one of the only stories that's mentioned in all four Gospels: Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all cover this one and the resurrection of Jesus. It is uh It is the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. They have a little bit of bread, a little bit of fish, and a lot of people. And Jesus prays, and he feeds them all, even with plenty left over. And then, it says, After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. And Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. All right, so here we already have Jesus not doing what you might expect a leader to do. Here he's just given the free handout. Here is here's food for everybody. You pay nothing. You come free lunch. There you go. And they say, "Oh, this is good. This is really good. We like the free. We like the free stuff. This guy should be our king because if he's our king, then we just get to eat and be happy." And, <laughs> and yet, what Jesus does is not what you would expect any political leader, to do. They say, hey, if this is how you're going to be, we're, we want you to be the king. And he's got 5,000 men, plus women and children, who are there, It's sort of grassroots movement to make him the new leader. Any political advisor would say, you got to leverage this. <laughs> this is the time. You've got these people. They're right here. All you have to do is keep them happy and on your side, and you can do whatever you want. And before long, you will be the next king. Well, we talked about this um, talked about this particular passage, actually, in Sunday school this morning, as, and Andrew pointed out, but Jesus already is king. Good point. He doesn't need to be made the king because he already is the king. And so as much as everybody wants to say, you need to leverage this opportunity, get, you know, do whatever it takes so that you can become king, he doesn't need to do that. He already is the king. And that's what we see in the very next story, because what happens now is he goes off by himself uh, to a mountain. The disciples go across the sea on a boat. There's a storm, and Jesus goes walking to the boat on the water. Walking to the boat on the water. Why? Because he is the king. Not just the king of Israel. He's the king over all creation. Over the wind, over the waves, over all of it. He gets in the boat at the end, and the waves are stilled. And the next day, they get to the shore. Uh, and the next day, when it, picking up in verse 25, it says, when, the, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Part that I skipped there. It says, There was only one boat that had left. They knew that. Jesus wasn't on that boat. And then they go to the other side, and there's Jesus there. How did this happen? They didn't see him walking on the lake like the disciples did. And so they ask him, when did you get here? Now, Jesus has an opportunity. He could answer their question and say, let me tell you how I got here. I, well, when I got here, I got here the same time the disciples did because I was in their boat. And They say, no, you weren't. We saw you leave the shore. Oh, I wasn't in the boat when we left the shore. I was in the boat when we arrived at this shore. What? How does that happen? Well, I walked across the lake. How? I'm the king over all creation. He has an opportunity to explain in these terms, but he doesn't. He doesn't. In fact, the questions that we're often asking are the wrong questions. And the questions this crowd is asking is the wrong question. They get over there, and they're curious. You know, what is it that Jesus has done to get here? And a lot of times we read the Bible or we look at things in the world and we ask the wrong questions. But Jesus reframes the question. He turns it around and asks the right question. And I wonder sometimes when we are praying, if we have prayers where we are asking the same question over and over and we feel like we're just not getting an answer. And I wonder if, if it's not that God doesn't know the answer or he doesn't... Um, isn't able to answer the question, but maybe he's wanting us to realize we're asking the wrong question. Maybe he has a better question in mind. And here's, uh, here's an easy way to tell if you're more likely asking the wrong question than the right one. The questions we tend to want to ask are questions like when, what, and how. All right. You read through Genesis chapter 1, and you read about the creation of the world, and what is, what is it that everybody's asking about that all the time? How did God do it? When did this take place? What was that like, you know, and what did it look like at this period of time, that period of time? And there's all these questions that go into it more from the scientific standpoint. But Genesis 1 is not answering the questions so much of when, what, and how. There's some of that there. But what it's primarily answering is who and why. And as you read through the Bible, there are lots of when, how, and what questions that get answered throughout. But only so far as they communicate who and why. And that's what Jesus does. He turns it around. They are asking, when did you get here? How did that happen? What was that like? And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. You are looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him the Father has placed his seal of approval. So he turns it around. And he says, you're asking me how I got here? Let me ask you, why did you come? And he gets to the heart of the issue, the motivations that they're having. Jesus has 5,000 people following him. But how many of them are following him for the right reasons? Not very many. In fact, he says the reason that you came all the way over here to see me again is not because you understand who I am. If you had understood the sign that I gave with the bread, showing that in the same way, even with the healings, that in the way that healing occurs now in our physical bodies, that he can do that now, we'll still get sick again. We'll still die eventually. But it's a sign to the kingdom when it comes in its fullness where there will be no sickness or death. When Jesus feeds the 5,000 people with a little bit of bread, it's because their bodies are hungry physically. They need physical food, and he has compassion on them. But ultimately, it's a sign of a time where we will be completely filled, satisfied And have life sustaining forever. Not just for a day where we're hungry again. He says, if you had understood that sign, you'd still be coming to me, but for a very different reason. You'd be coming to me because you understand that I am the one through whom life is being offered. Instead, you're coming to me because you got a free meal yesterday and you're hoping to get another one today. Why? Are they following Jesus? Why are we following Jesus? Is it because we've heard that if we come to Jesus, we can have the things of this world? That we can have increased bank accounts? That we can have healing from our various illnesses? He can provide all those things. But if we're just coming to him for the next physical meal... Instead of realizing that he is the one who provides spiritual fulfillment that goes on forever, they may need to reevaluate. And that's what he's asking them to do, to reevaluate. And in this, they, so they ask um, and they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? They're so like, Okay, he's not going to give us the free food as easily as he did yesterday. So we'll, we may have to do a little something here. So, okay, so what is it that God requires? We'll do that, you'll be happy, and then you'll feed us more bread. And he says, the, <laughs> Jesus answered, the work of God is this. And you know, they're like, okay, anything, you tell us, we'll do it. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. That's it. To believe in the one he has sent. Who's the one he sent? Obviously, it's Jesus. But there's, it's pretty easy to misunderstand what he means here. James tells us uh, that there's a difference between intellectual belief and actual trusting in God. When he says, you, know, you believe there's one God? Good. Of course, even the, demon, even the demons believe that, and they shudder. And you see that with Jesus as he goes around throughout, uh, throughout Galilee, the people that are shouting out who Jesus is. You know, what do you want with me, son of the Most High? Who's saying that? It's the demons. They're the ones who recognize who Jesus really is. But they don't trust in him. They don't want to follow him. They don't give their lives to him. There's a big difference between a true-false test. Do you believe, you know, is, is Jesus Son of God? Yep, true, got it and actually giving your life to him. Two illustrations. You could have some friends that you get together with and you'd like to discuss whether or not you believe in the Loch Ness Monster. Whether or not you believe in Bigfoot. And you can get together and you can have long discussions and, that go late into the evening and one says one thing, one says another, and you have those conversations and is not that fun. And at the end of the day, It affects neither of your lives one bit. Whether you believe it, whether you don't. If you're talking about the Loch Ness Monster, you live in Texas, you never go to Scotland. Whether you believe it or not doesn't matter. That's intellectual belief. What Jesus is talking about here, and that's what they hear, by the way. But what Jesus is talking about is something different. Uh, There's an old story about a young boy who's in a building. He's on second or third floor up. And it catches on fire. He can't get to the doors. They're blocked through uh, the flames. And so he goes to his window. He opens the window. And he starts screaming for help. Well, his dad is in the yard. He hears him. And he goes over and he's like, I can see you. Jump to me. I'll catch you. Jump to me. And the boy's like, I can't. It's too far. He's like, I will catch you. Just jump to me. And he says, but I can't. I can't see you. The smoke is too thick. He says, it's okay. I can see you. Jump. Now, do you think what the father is wanting is for his friend to go back inside, call one of his friends, or for the boy to go back inside, call one of his friends, and say, okay, here's what's going on. there's a burning house. My dad, I, you know, I hear this voice from down there, but I don't really hear him. And they get in a conversation, and finally he says, okay, you know what? I, I do. I believe that that really is my dad. Uh, thanks very much. Goodbye. And so he believes that that's his dad, and he stays in his room. Not what his dad is going for, is it? What his dad is looking for is not that he just believes intellectually that that is his dad that's down there calling to him. But he wants him to believe in the sense of throwing himself completely to the mercy of his father. That his dad would be the one who would catch him and take him to safety. When Jesus says, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent, talking about believing like you believe in the Loch Ness Monster or not? Or believing like the boy jumping to his father? I hope you understand he means the latter. The crowds, though, they didn't get that. Many in churches today don't get that. The crowds say, uh, they still try to dodge, and they say, so they asked him, what miraculous sign then will you give so that we may see it and believe in you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus just gave them bread yesterday. And today, they're still trying, well, you know, maybe we would believe in you if you'd give us a sign like, um, I don't know, we're kind of hungry. If you give us some bread, I think that's one of those, those Bible things that Moses did a long time ago. If you'll give us some of that bread, then we'll believe in you. Okay, first he already did it yesterday. Second, as he points out, that's less important. uh, Second, as he points out, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who's giving you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Moses didn't give the bread, God gives the bread. God is the one who saves. And they say, sir, from now on, give us this bread. And Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, and you have seen me and you still do not believe, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. What is it that Jesus is answering? Who he is and why he's come. They say, give us this bread so we're not going to be hungry again. And he says, this is who I am. This is why I've come. He communicates the message, which is centered in the person of Jesus and his mission to save people. Jesus just preached the gospel to a crowd of 5,000 people. If anybody is going to see some good results here, I mean, we're going to have a major church growth issue right there on the Sea of Galilee. But it says instead, At this, the Jews begin to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? So he just answered who he is and why he came. And they stumble because they're still asking the how question. How can he say he came down from heaven? We know where he comes from. Now, he came from Bethlehem, right? Here's a little Hebrew for you. You know what Bethlehem means in Hebrew? Beth, house, lechem, bread. House of bread. Jesus, the one who comes from the house of bread, is now saying, I'm the bread of life. And they say, I don't get it. I don't get it. We know where you come from. We know who your parents are. You say you come down from heaven. You say you're the bread. Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. Did you get that? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the Prophets. They will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. I tell you the truth, he who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you, shall have, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day, for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. And he said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, "This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it?" It almost sounds like Jesus is promoting some some bizarre form of cannibalism. But actually, he's giving metaphors. I am the bread of life. In other words, You are focused on the material, the physical, temporary bread that will sustain you for a day. Just the same way that your forefathers ate the manna and they were sustained for the day, but the next day they're hungry again. And more needs to be provided. He says, come to me. Let me be the one that sustains you spiritually, not just for a day, but forever. But they don't get it. They don't get it. They're too focused still on the physical. So aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to him, Does this offend you? What if you were to see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, That is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. God saves people. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. This has got to be one of the strangest evangelistic campaigns ever. And yet, it's one of those things where if it weren't Jesus, we would say, well, let's not follow that. (laughs) Let's go look at somebody who has better results numerically. Let's look at somebody who starts out with 12 and ends up with 5,000. And whatever they're doing, let's copy it. Jesus starts out with 5,000 and ends with 12. And that is to be our model. Not that the numbers are to be our model, but the message is the model. And the response is left up to God. Do you understand what I'm saying? Jesus is our message. He is the message of good news, of hope for the world, of salvation to all who believe. Not up here, but who really believe in and on Jesus. secondly, that it is God who saves people, not us. We communicate the message, but Jesus is the message, and it's God who changes people's hearts and lives through that. Which does two things for us. One, it means if somebody receives the message well, we share the message, they respond. We don't pat ourselves on the back and go, look what I did. We know that God gets all the glory and praise. That's why when I began the talk this sermon this morning, I thanked you all for your prayers for the kids who were in Colorado who came to know Jesus there. Because it was nothing that people did there in Colorado. Yes, we were trying to facilitate new relationships with Jesus. We are always trying to do that. But God saves. And so that's why we pray that God would soften hearts, that he would change lives. He would save people. And secondly, not only do we not uh, get proud when people respond well, but we also don't get discouraged when they don't respond well. And that's what we see with Jesus here. We're going to look later at a, uh, John chapter 4 where we see a different kind of response. But in this instance, the people did not respond well. They grumbled, they complained, and they left. And yet Jesus does not change the message he does not change the mission and he's not discouraged God the Father saves people he calls those he calls he doesn't those he doesn't we don't know why we don't know who which is which he knows those but we communicate the message and we remember we have a message to share and we remember God saves people